0: The following podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC. When it comes to addressing the climate crisis, materials matter. In 2015, polyester production for textiles alone was responsible for emissions of over 700 million tonnes of carbon dioxide, similar to the annual greenhouse gas emissions of Mexico. This is projected to nearly double by 2030, reaching twice the emissions of Australia. Production of cheap synthetic fibres not only enables low quality throwaway fashion, it also makes the fashion industry highly dependent on a continued fossil fuel extraction. If the fashion industry continues with business as usual, in less than 10 years, almost three quarters of our textiles will be produced from fossil fuels. What's more, these fossil fuels are getting dirtier, already coming from fracked gas and even with projects in the pipeline to produce polyester from coal. Climate action starts at the source of the materials we choose. Cotton, polyester, wool, leather, silk, viscose and more. At Textile Exchange, they're driving positive impact on the environment across the fashion and textile industry right from the start of the supply chain. And at the Warrior Women Network, we passionately believe it's time to accelerate action, which means working together. Textile Exchange have made it their mission to guide a growing community of brands, manufacturers, farmers, organisations and other industry stakeholders in a collective climate strategy. They're focusing on how fibres are farmed, sourced and extracted. Today, I'm speaking with Ashley Gill, Chief Strategy Officer at Textile Exchange. Fibres are very close to her heart. She grew up on a cotton farm in Texas and spent time as a Peace Corps volunteer in rural West Africa before joining Textile Exchange in 2010. After spending time in various roles of the organisation, she has been working on the Textile Exchange standard since 2012, starting with the first international working group for the Global Recycled Standard. Ashley helped create the framework for standard setting at Textile Exchange and the development of claims and labelling for certified products. Welcome, Ashley. Absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Um, I'd love to kick off this episode for our listeners getting to know more about you. Can you tell us a bit about your family, your history, and the work that you do in the world?
1: Yeah, thank you. Like you said, I I did grow up on a cotton farm. Uh, My grandfather started farming in Texas around the Panhandle area, probably, I think it was in the 70s or so, but really started picking up um, in the 80s. My father farmed with him uh, most of his career, and then he... uh, Once my grandfather retired, then my dad took it over, um, and he is now retiring and and passing the farm on to my brother. Um, And so I have, my brother's the third generation of cotton farming in my family. Um, And I I grew up in a really small town. The the, um, community that I grew up in is about 320 people. Um, and I didn't know that anybody had jobs that were not farmers. Um, that was kind of my, uh, the, the water that I was swimming in, I guess you could say. And I grew up with this kind of inherent understanding of how reliant we were on the land and on weather. Um, I remember my dad would, you know, make sure that all of us were really quiet during the weather forecast because that was kind of his only chance to see whether it was going to rain or how hot it was going to be. And just that inherent understanding that we were, our whole livelihood was wrapped up in the land, um, and that was something that that I didn't really question or didn't really think about. And then, um, but I did know that I wanted to do something different. I wasn't really interested in farming. I thought like this is not for me. Um, and so I, after I finished college, I joined the Peace Corps, which is a U.S. Uh, volunteer organization. It's actually run through the U.S. government. In partnership with uh, other countries, and I was in a re- really rural part of Cameroon in West Africa, and I ended up on a in a farming community again, um, and it was really interesting because in that role we were essentially tasked with building community projects around deforestation specifically. Um, and so, again, you see this really strong connection to the land. It was a community of people that were completely reliant on what they could grow in a given year. And while they did grow a lot of other things, they also grew cotton. Um, and they were all very impressed that I already knew about <laughs> cotton and knew how to pick pick the cotton. Um, but that, I think, was the first real I didn't use the, this language at the time, but deforestation is climate change. And they were experiencing that on a, on a day-to-day basis, and it was affecting their life on a day-to-day basis. And so I I really started to understand. I had always thought, like, I'm going to go have a job that, quote-unquote, helps people. And I really started to understand from that experience that the background that I have and that connection to the land is something that we all have. We're just, um, in some instances, much farther away from, you know, from seeing those impacts on a day-to-day basis. And that community in in Cameroon, they had no, you know, no choice but to see the effects of deforestation on their day-to-day lives, um, having smaller and smaller plots of land that were viable for growing food. Um, and having smaller and smaller yields from cotton because the soil had been depleted over time, um, just from, from kind of trying to farm the same thing over and over again. And so that kind of, you know, I was like, okay, I want to do something with environment. I, this is important to me. And so I, I came home from that experience and I was actually living with my parents and my mom cut out a, um, a newspaper clipping in a really tiny new, local newspaper and they were looking for a administrative assistant in a in a global nonprofit. And I told my mom, "There's no way that there's a global nonprofit in O'Donnell. There's definitely not one that's like you know connected to the kind of work that I want to do." Uh, but I learned more about what was at the time called Organic Exchange. And uh, by the time I did the second interview, I was. Like okay, this is it. This is where I want to be, <laughs> um, and and that was uh, in 2010. And really, I think the organization and I have in some ways grown up together um, because we were fairly small. We were focusing on organic cotton, and that same year that I joined is when we first started uh, working as Textile Exchange and. And taking that, you know, you mentioned at the start, you mentioned cotton and polyester and wool, and it really in the beginning we were mostly focusing on cotton. But um, in 2010, when we expanded, we turned into you know focusing on all these other materials. And so my my work has really focused on on setting standards, but I've I've learned. The ins and outs of our organization. I've worked in probably almost every role that there is, um, including just in the in the past month um, being the
0: chief strategy officer. Incredible! Couple of comments on everything you've shared. I recently went to an amazing event in Somerset, in the West Country, in England, and had the good fortune to meet a gentleman who, for a long time, was head of environment at Tesco's, and he delivered this incredible. Speech about his auntie Regina in Nigeria, mm. and he talked about how when he's working on the kind of campaigns that he has at Tesco, he's always thinking about his auntie Regina, and he's always thinking about the impact that their decisions will have on her. And it occurs to me that when we hear terms like supply chain and manufacturing, which I definitely would love to get into in a moment with you, it occurs to me that we are in a world where a corporatized language around collective action for climate change. And there are these kind of special people for which I count you as one within organizations for which this is personal, right? Mm. How do you think that impacts your work? Do you find yourself getting emotional about your work when you're talking about the solutions you're trying to come up with? Or have you separated yourself somewhat the longer you've been there?
1: I, I don't think I would use the word emotional. I think, um, I do think a lot about um, about how the decisions that we're making affect my family and affect kind of the like the viability of farming in the long term and and I grew up in I mentioned that the the town that I grew up in was really small and I actually think about that a lot about that community and how farming I think I'm I just tend to be a systems thinker and so this is just the way my brain works but. I think about how farming has changed since my grandfather was doing it in the '80s, and how it is now. Where that community at that time was was really really strong. It was very small. There's a lot of um, like conflict resolution you have to be good at to to live in community in a community like that, where you're you're like a family. You fight about things, but you also have to figure things out. You have to work together if you want to make things like a fire department work or a school or churches. And what I think about is that as we, um, have expanded this apparel industry, we started moving away from those types of communities, you know, a hundred years ago, or maybe I should probably closer to 200 years ago, but clothing was made and in kind of this small, um, plot of land and there was you know you you use the wool that that your neighbors grew to turn that into yarn and turn that into fabric and that community i think is still real it's just a much a much bigger one and a global one and part of what i see as as kind of the reality of the work that we're trying to do is that we're so we're so um visually disconnected from the beginning of the supply chain and brands and retailers don't know where they're they literally don't know where that material is coming from Mm. consumers buy product they don't even know necessarily what material went into it what what the beginning of that that quote-unquote supply chain looks like but it is a community and it is all connected and part of what I see as kind of beautiful in the work that Textile Exchange has done, and especially I, I want to also just credit our founder, Lorraine Pepper, who I think is a pioneer. She's a pioneer in, in organic cotton, of course, but she's also a pioneer in that community aspect and creating spaces where brands and retailers and manufacturers and farmers can sit around the same table and have conversations about you know how is the decisions that the brand, because they're the ones with most of the power, how are the decisions that they're making affecting the supply chain and affecting those people that are at the beginning? And so I do think about my family. I think about um, a woman named Esther, who was really kind of my mom when I, when I was in the Peace Corps. And she wor- has worked harder than any person I've ever witnessed in my life. Um, and she also kind of was the i think in some ways the the hub of the community that i lived in in cameroon so i think about those individuals but i also think about the impacts that the the decisions that we're making in the supply chain how they affect how we're relating to our communities and how we how we talk about and how we define communities and i i think textile exchange has has really created a space
0: for a community to have these conversations mm. in the industry those sound like incredible, powerful meetings, um, the empathy that must come back into the process. And I think the empathy that we've lost, like you say, when we purchase an item of clothing to to realise what's gone into it. I'm really keen for every episode that we do to be a learning experience for our listeners. So we purposely talk about women in prison or how politics needs to change. And um, there are so many systems of, in our lives, as you know, that are interchangeable, but often we don't have the time or maybe the, the right resources to kind of dig deep into them. And something that I'd love for you to do, you know, we may, some of the listeners may be supply chain experts, but others might not. So would you mind just explaining, you know, what is a supply chain and what are the problems that we need to solve related to the textile supply chain specifically?
1: Textile exchange really our mission is that materials matter. And that's the part that we focus on. And The very beginning of the life of our clothes is often and almost always thousands of miles from the shop where we buy it or these days the the mailbox where we pull it out of. Sometimes it can be a farm. It could be a large mechanized farm like the one that I grew up on. We had a few hundred acres of cotton. We rotated that with other food crops, but mostly it was cotton. More likely, if it's on a farm, it's a smaller farm that's managed by uh, smallholders in uh, rural Africa, in in other places like that in Asia. But primarily these days, it actually starts at an oil drill um, because most of synthetic material is coming from virgin fossil fuels, which is part of the, the oil and gas industry. It's an incredibly extractive, impactful process. Uh, once that fiber is either extracted or or made or grown, then it goes through to uh, a yarn mill, so where it gets spun into yarn. Most people call the the weight of the of the yarn that's in the textile industry. They would look at that and call it thread, um, but it's referred to as yarn. And then that goes to either a weaver or a knitter, uh, where it gets turned into fabric. And then the garment manufacturer. Is where that fabric is cut into pieces and sewn together. It's really common to think, oh, we're we're living in you know 2022. I'm sure that all of that is mechanized, but actually, the garment portion where fabric is cut is is almost done entirely by hand. Um, and so those that garment manufacturing step is likely in a in a place where labor is really cheap. Um, so that's why a lot of times you see. Made in Bangladesh, made in uh, Sri Lanka, made in places where the the labor is is much cheaper, and so that's that's kind of where those that part of the supply chain happens. It also passes through traders, distributors. Sometimes the fiber itself is traded by um, an, like a distributor. And then it also happens a lot that garments themselves, or even you know from the time that that it becomes a branded garment where it has the logo or the tag on it, um, it will also go through a few different distribution steps before it actually reaches a store or goes directly to uh, someone's home. So the the part that entire supply chain is very. Um, it's very long, it's very global. A lot of times uh, in different portions of that supply chain, it will maybe start grown in the US and then it will go to South America to be spun. And then it might go to India to turn into fabric and then go into Asia to turn into a garment. And so the the life of the clothes that you have has, they've had a very big full life <laughs> before they even reach you. Um, and the part of that work that Textile Exchange focuses on is the material portion. And we really believe that the choices that brands make can affect the environment and can have um, either a really positive impact or a negative one. And our our focus at the moment where we talk about the climate plus strategy. And so we're we're really committed to urgent climate action. But we also, I think just through the course of the work of the organization, this is our 20 year anniversary. And so we had kind of eight or so years as organic exchange and now 12 years as textile exchange. But what we've learned through that process is that you cannot isolate a specific impact and say, okay, that's all I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to focus on other issues because I want to get, you know, really good at that. And, what happens with that is that you have a, a ton of unintended consequences that you're not able to plan for. And so we really are, are trying to elevate the understanding of what GHG emissions are at the fiber level, but also impacts like soil health, water, biodiversity, how it's affecting uh, people's livelihoods, human rights issues, animal welfare Um, We do mostly focus on environmental because that's where we have more expertise, Uh, but we work with other organizations that can help us create a more holistic picture of what's really happening at that material level.
0: Series two of the Warrior Women podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC, a London-based venture capital firm. Zinc are currently looking for 70 talented individuals to participate in a 12-month venture programme aimed at transforming the sectors most impacting the environment. This is a real opportunity for impact-driven individuals to access expert support and up to £250,000 in financial backing to build a venture from scratch. And brilliantly, over 50% of founders on their last venture builder were women. Go to zinc.vc for more information on how to apply. I love that you're a systems thinker and I love that you were talking about unintended um, consequences, which obviously, of course, is, is a big part of systems thinking. But when you, again, when when we hear about, you know, the Rana Plaza uh, incident, of course, where a thousand plus garment workers were killed. When we hear about these things; it's sad, and we feel devastated by them. But often, I don't think we ask enough. You know, what are the real reason why this problem exists? And of course, we know that mm. overconsumption is an issue. We talk about capitalism, but again, I think sometimes it's when you talk to the people who are really trying to solve these problems, it comes down to really interesting things like. We don't love each other enough or (laughs) So I'm just curious about, you know, if you sit with it for a moment outside of the strategy documents and the meetings and the legislation, why do you feel that this problem exists, that we are extracting this material and turning it into clothes and buying them without care or appreciation for where they've come from? I think for me, it's that we just don't we don't live with the consequences
1: of the action we, the consequences are happening somewhere else to someone else in places that we can't see, that we don't, we don't have to live with on a day-to-day basis. Um, there's, there's a book uh, called All We Can Save, and it's, it's edited by Dr. Ayana Johnson. But there's an essay in there written by Catherine Hayhoe. I believe it's Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Um, and she actually lives in Lubbock, Texas, which is where, I, where my family's uh, farms are. And it's this really beautiful, like, she's a scientist, but it's this this article about how do you talk to people about climate change? And how do you talk to people who maybe are not necessarily as open to the conversation? And one of the incredible pieces of work that she's done is to create models that are extremely localized so she can actually go to Miami, Florida and say this is what climate change is going to look like in Miami and these are the models of of what what weather patterns we're going to see in the next 5 years of specific things are going that are going to happen right here and I think that that is the, that's really the key. And part of the work that, you know, that we're doing as an organization is is to try to show a face and to show um, the realities of what's happening in these places that otherwise it's very, very easy in the system that we have built, this system of, you know, like you said, g- capitalism and and greed and um, where it's it's totally fine to export our problems to other places or to extract what we want regardless of the consequences to that place. And I think part of the, I, I don't think that, that it's a lack of, of love or a lack of care. I think we're all really busy. Everybody has, you know, they've got the things that are pressing them right in their face. They're thinking about whether they're going to be able to pay their mortgage. If you're a farmer, you're thinking about, like, what do I need to do this year in the next month to make sure that the crop comes up? And so if it's not right in front of our faces, a lot of times it's really difficult for us to give the time and the energy for it. And part of the – I think the reason why capitalism works is that all of the parts that you that are terrible and that, that are not working – are So far away um, from from the people who actually have the power to change them. And there's a lot of um, I think the the other thing I love about the work that we do is that I get to work with the people who are making a difference and who are working on uh, changing the way their business operates and changing the sourcing strategy and working with buyers and educating the design team but all those people still are kind of working within that system of trying to increase the value for share- shareholders, increase the the profit that the company is making. And the people that are making those decisions, they're not seeing the same thing that the people that we work with are seeing. And so I think it's, I, I have a lot of, of um, hope, actually, and a lot of, um, I'm, I think I'm an optimist, I think. <laughs> I'm a, a realistic optimist. But but I do think people in general don't want terrible things to happen to other people. They don't want terrible things to happen to rivers and oceans because of the decisions that they as an individual are making. But all of us are part of this system that, that does contribute those negative impacts and the more I think that we're able to show it and to provide transparency, to, to show case studies of the impacts where, where the farmers are not changing their practices, are, are having to rely on contracts that are only a year long, those kinds of situations we can show the negative impact of them and then show the positive of farms where there has been invested investment in regenerative practices where there's been investment from from long-term contracts with with their buyers where they are able to invest in the long term and so I I think that's really what the challenge is and it's really I think uh another person that I love is Brené Brown and she says it's really hard to hate people close up. And if you see someone and there's someone that's in your community, it's a lot more difficult to just dismiss the problems that they're facing that are directly
0: linked to the decisions you're making. Mm. And on that point about the people who are at the top of organizations who are, you know, the ones doing the investor meetings or Standing up front at the AGM, I've heard from some really amazing people about some breakthrough work with bringing leaders at the top of organisations together and having them have space to really talk about the pressures they're under and able to kind of put down their corporate self and pick up their real self and connect with of course I don't want to be doing damage around the world of course I don't want to be harming people the planet but these are the pressures that I'm under and I try and Mm -hmm. I try and really hold space for those people being good as well but maybe not having the right infrastructure around them to be able to meet themselves in new ways and increasingly hearing these terms that you know, inner inner work leads to outer change, um, mm-hmm. and I think that that's some of the most powerful work that we're going to see. So you were talking about bringing together different groups, you know, the brands, the manufacturers, the farmers to hear from each other. I think we need to think about how we support these people, and and we you know we hear about these new leaders, you know, Paul po- Paul Polman at Unilever being quite a well known one. Mm-hmm. Um, A previous guest that we had, I'm sure you'll know about her work, Cressy Wesling, who is the founder of Elvis & Cressy, who is what we call a waste warrior and has been working to Mm -hmm. remove fire hose from landfill from the fire brigade. And she was talking about how the CEO at Sky, for example, is doing absolutely incredible work in terms of waste management and is really intentional on knowing, you know, where every piece of materials come from and it does feel like the solutions and and the better way of doing things is there but we still need people who hold the power to be driving them forward would you agree with that
1: definitely yeah i i think there's there's a role that textile exchange can play and we we like i mentioned before we are working really closely with with decision makers and implementers but there's also the way we've we've started thinking about it is there's this enabling environment around us, and even in places where we have not historically worked, like in policy or in um, you know creating new business models, talking to not just to CEOs but also to CFOs, to chief financial officers, where they can understand and even have that community of other peers that you know we've made these commitments we do want to do better but we don't actually know how to do it because i mean stepping stepping in a really really simple place if you do the the modeling for ghg emissions reduction you know specifically we want people to swap out the materials that they're currently using for better ones and that's that's where a lot of the work that we've done in the past has been focusing on and a buying team can do that, like a buying and a sourcing team. It will be difficult for them. They may have to pay more for some of those materials, but they can they can affect a lot of change in that space. But the other portion that you have to look at is the rate of growth. And if you look at the model of where where we were in 2019 – And where we are trying to get to to reach a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in fiber usage, which is what scientists and the UN are telling us we have to do to stay within that 1.5 degree difference in global warming, that 45%, the only way we can get there is if we slow down the pace of growth and a sourcing team cannot do that. That is not a sourcing team's remit. They that they're not given that power. The only people who have the power to slow down the growth and to really change the business model are the CEOs, the shareholders, the 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 CFOs. And so we're having internal conversations about how we can provide exactly what you described, mm-hmm. that same community and that same kind of almost a safe place for them to come together and say what what do we need to do differently are there are there some of us that have learned a lot and that we can share with others so we can we can change this what policies um are could be helpful in in making this path more realistic to us um but really that that degrowth conversation is a is the new frontier, but it's also the place that's got to change, um, in order for us to actually hit the targets that we want to achieve. And those are really, you know, big system level decisions. And again, I think, you know, showing, showing what, what the, what the numbers say, showing how that's going to impact their business specifically, um, but then also using that power of, of the community to bring them together to find solutions together that, that probably we don't know because they, they're they
0: definitely the experts in that field. Just reminded me of a conversation I had recently with the CEO of a large organization and I asked him what his view was on degrowth and he said, what's degrowth? <laughs> so I think there's a... That I, so there's the work we have to but do. I, you know, I would argue you were saying, you know, the CEO... And the stakeholders they have a role to say we need, you know, we need to make less and we need to slow down growth. And I want, you know, for a lot of if you're an independent organization, I think you have that power. Right. But the reality is the finance industry holds the power. And yeah. I was at um London Tech Week last week, and there was a kind of climate summit day, and um there was a slide up and it really struck me, and it said the financial industry is deciding which problems mm. get solved and it really I mean I'm sure that hits you too because yeah we know we know we we know they have the power but actually when you think about the investment community and uh, it really seems to me and I, I go through this process where I speak to so many it's such a privilege in my life I speak to so many incredible people and it means I've become a bit of a wonder of worlds and I start picking up my own threads you know when you start hearing things in different (laughs) places and at the moment there's just this big it's where it's where money's flowing to but it's also where the solutions can be made but it's also it's people stepping forward and saying you know we need we need to stop now and and my favorite my favorite line which summarizes all of that is that profit is the worst word in the human language because when we decided that after we'd made back our money we needed to have more I think we started on quite a mm. dangerous path so I should definitely reach out to a, a finance warrior to have that conversation. Um, yeah, it would be it would be a great one. Yeah. So the reason why I one of the reasons why I created this podcast is because. We need stories of hope, and right now, when I have conversations with friends and family, and we have conversations like, "Oh, social media—it's gonna—it's killing our children's lives. It's gonna be worse." And I say, right now, around the globe, there are millions of people who are looking at these problems. You know, in universities, in startup communities, mm-hmm. um, and I'm hopeful that. People want to be doing this kind of work, you know. If it's a question of going and working for a large organisation now, going working that's you know purely profit driven, or if it's going and working for an impact organisation, impact led organisation like Textile Exchange, we all know there's a war on talent. So, what positive stories can you share? You've already shared a few of them, but what are the big successes you've seen that have really helped you to have hope?
1: Well, I've, I've started, like I mentioned, I started in an administrative assistant role and I, I worked in, in that capacity. I worked a lot with our kind of internal communications and with our, our board and our, our senior leadership. And I remembered everything that I heard <laughs> and, and I, you know, brought that into the, the work that we were doing with, with standards. But um, I'll just talk about the standards just briefly, what, kind of what we've, what we've done and and what that's meant for me um the standards are a really interesting place because they're they're so practical and we you know we've had this this great conversation about some of these big systems thinking and and even like personal perspectives and shifts that need to happen and a standards process is very like in some ways it's very black and white because you you know that you're trying to come up with a set of criteria, and the way our standards work is we come up with a set of criteria that get applied at the raw material level, and then we use uh, what we call chain of custody to track that material through the supply chain. And the the purpose of that is really to, even if in a system where you don't necessarily always know where the material is coming from, you can at least know that it met certain level of of maybe practice or your own expectations and that's the purpose that standards serve and when you have a global independent standard it's a lot easier for um you know for rather than just one company asking for something from an individual supplier you have everyone asking for a standard that that creates a little bit of efficiency in uh how these practices get checked that kind of thing um but in order to write them i mean you can't really like sometimes you do. you have an, an expert that sits down in a in a dark room and just writes out the requirements. But in order for you to actually achieve scale and get multiple people to sign on, you have to take their input into consideration. And so a lot of the work that i I did was around creating that space and creating, We call them international working groups, but they're bringing together uh, brands and retailers, suppliers, um, farmers, producers, and also people who are not connected to the industry at all, uh, like animal welfare experts, scientists, um, those that that understand the impacts that we're trying to affect. And so. You take all those people, and you—we—we um, we didn't meet in person. We've—we've we've done all of this virtually. We've actually been a virtual organization most of my career, um, and so the pandemic was not different for us. <laughs> it didn't change very much for us. But instead of being in a room, you're—you know—you're in an online space, and in that space, you're trying to create that trust in in these really wildly diverse backgrounds, so that people can. Understand what we're trying to get to. Who can agree on kind of the vision and the goal that we have, and then also agree on the on the tactics, on the specifics of how we're going to get there. Um, And I think it's it's actually been you know given me a lot of hope in my personal life because in the United States right now it's an extremely divisive time. It's very um, everything is very really. I've heard anything about it. Liberal or conservative.
0: I just. So I don't need to
1: explain all of that. That's great, <laughs> but I think being in that like very practical, very pragmatic space where you're taking people that don't agree with each other and producing something that everyone is proud of, um, you know, maybe some people didn't get what they wanted in, where you're actually you know working on compromise. That's given me an enormous amount of hope um, because companies really do understand like. You know, they, they want to, to achieve things. Everybody is at kind of a different pace. But going through that process of building the standards with the community has been um, so incredible to me because it's it's allowed me to see that, that that perception, that that conversation and that compromise is bad and that there's no, you know, everything is black and white and you're either with us or you're against us. All of that is kind of a construct that that is is selling a story about what's actually happening when in reality, people want to work together. They want to find um, find common ground. And that's something that that we've seen in this community. We have an enormous number of of industry members of other groups that have wanted to participate in these groups because I think it it has that kind of, um, positive benefit, and there's been a lot of lessons that we've learned about places where we we need to be, you know, more ambitious, or where we need to be more pragmatic. Um, it's also really important to to not take a global standard and expect that it's going to be applied in every context the same way. Um, but again, our community has helped us learn those lessons and has given us the feedback and the input, and and really has tested the standards out. We have. Um, in the last four years or so, the number of companies that are using our standards has, I think, tripled um, or quadrupled maybe even a couple of times. We've seen phenomenal growth. And I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, and I don't know very many people who've been in the same job or the same company for 12 years. And part of the, what's kept me is that it is that, that energy around very practical problem-solving Uh, with a group of people and I think people really want to do that and they're drawn to
0: that there's just not a lot of space for that type of thing to happen yeah and I'm what I'm hearing about through this conversation is really dynamic organization um Obviously led by the pioneer. At, at, is that is that a woman or was it a man who's the founder?
1: Yeah, Lorraine, woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we actually are mostly mostly women yeah. in the organisation. Side note: mostly women
0: here doing pioneering <laughs> work. Um, the you know, I'm just hearing lots of really interesting ways in which the organization works and it sounds very much like you see your role as a convening organization which is definitely something that i definitely. see the warrior group as so we have a number of different partnerships and all of those partnerships are linked to how can we bring people together who represent you know the system essentially how do we bring together different people diversity of thought to solve these challenges and this kind of increasing need for the an organisation to have that role. Um, There's actually Mm -hmm. a really interesting article about systems convening, about this specific specific type of company or specific type of person that brings people together. And it sounds like the textile exchange is definitely sitting within that, but also organisations which become, even though you are employed allow you to come as yourself with your own ambitions and vision for what you want to change in the world and organizations that just facilitate that so when you were saying you know i'm a natural problem Mm -hmm. solver obviously you have your background in cotton it's become it's like a container for individuals to succeed and i think there's some you know there's obviously a story to be told there with textile exchange many of our guests are driven to the change making work that they do through personal experience and certainly you have that in copious amounts for example Paula Harriet, who is head of prisoner involvement at the prison reform trust and was a previous series one guest she was a prisoner herself as a mother of five what about your life experience do you think has meant you're a warrior for change in this space
1: I think it it comes down to that um connection with the land um, I I think there's there's so many experiences that we have that I have within this organization now that there's really two different languages often that are spoken um, you know I've been to meetings with my dad where they're uh, it's the the gin the cotton gin they're essentially the is, is a co-op it's owned by all of the farmers and so I went to a meeting with him And just thinking like, you know, a textile exchange conference and the language that we use in some places with the with the brand and retail industry and then the language that farmers use for one, you know, when they're talking to one another feels so different and it feels really far away. And so I think the the life experience that I have is is really bridging two worlds in some ways, bridging the world of a farming community with the world of, you know, corporate brands, buying and selling, and to understand that, that they're connected and that they're reliant on one another, um, and, and creating those spaces to, um, you know, to make that happen. But I think also uh, the other thing that Larray, our founder, that she has really emphasized within the organization is being ecosystem driven rather than ego driven. And I think it's something that is unique. I I will just say it. I think it's unique about women-led organizations, and it's something that I feel extremely grateful um, for. You know, bringing into, being brought into this work, and also the kind of environment that I create for the teams that I'm I have built, or that we're building. There's when I started that we were like twenty or so people, and we're. Uh, right close to a hundred now. And so we are building a really large team and de- redefining what e- what an ecosystem is with a larger team is is definitely a challenge that we're facing at the moment. but um, you know I think about the the types of that ecosystem dynamic in the community that I grew up in in the the uh, even just in my own family, Everybody had a role to play. There was no like, you know, leader that was was making all the decisions for everyone else. Even my dad, you know, he can't make you can't make farming decisions out of ego. You you, I think it's a very humbling experience to to be a farmer and to be totally reliant on weather patterns, um, on whether your crops are going to work or not. And you know, having really strong women in my family. That reinforced to me that there's no limit to what I want to do. If I want to go to school, that's great. If I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever I wanted to be, that I could. Um, that everybody has a role to play, and I really see that playing out both in the in the industry at large, where we're trying to inspire people to uh, to make the change that's right in front of them, but also I think to uh, build that within our own organization. Uh, we, I think. Uh, you know, Lorraine and, and Claire Bergkamp now, who's our chief operating officer. I think all three of us feel a lot of responsibility for the type of work we create for our teams, um, for it to be work that really inspires them, where they feel like they have um, a lot of creat- creativity that they can bring to how they solve problems, and to inspire that type of thinking with the, the companies that we work with. Um, and so I, I really think it's, again... I talked about being a systems thinker and for me it's that that connection and that connective tissue that we all have with one another and how we can use that to problem solve um, and and to create
0: change at at a larger scale. It sounds like textile exchange really has created a place where people can be anything they want to be and I think that's really special. Uh, what other women are doing great work in this space that you'd like to amplify by mentioning them on this podcast? You mentioned Claire, who I I, I found you through because I was told about the amazing <laughs> work that she did at Stella McCartney. Obviously, I've learned about Lori yeah. now. Anyone else that you think we should be following and supporting? Uh, I think Dr. Ayana Johnson. She, she's
1: got a great uh, YouTube video, actually, that came out recently on finding joy in climate action, uh, which I think is really beautiful and a great kind of, bite size. I think it's just a 10 minute video. Um, Really, uh, really inspiring. Um, I actually want to talk about one of my coworkers, um, (laughs) Yvonne. I think she's at the moment right now, she's working on building uh, um, our technology system. And it's an interesting, I I think the point I want to make is that it's a, to me, it's such a great example of ecosystem decision-making over ego. And there's a lot of of companies and people trying to build technology to allow for supply chain traceability. So this is, I won't go into too much detail, but that's essentially kind of a whole space that's happening. And there's a lot of people that are are trying to, to do that. And a lot of the approach that people have, have taken is kind of an empire building one where they're going to build the platform that everyone uses Um, and Yvonne took a completely different approach. I think she, she, instead of trying to find the platform or to build the platform, all she really was trying to set out to do is to build the framework, um, and essentially to build the data language that we use to track this information. And because she took that approach, which I think was a very like eco, uh, ecosystem thinking type of approach we're getting much closer, I think, than almost anyone has, to really building a a, a way for this to happen at scale, um, and so that is changing the supply chain. It's going to change how companies track their materials. It's going to change how easy it is for them to collect information about their supply chain, which I think again is just going to you know bring the the beginning of the supply chain closer. Uh, so I think that's an incredible example, and I also just want to call out the women in the supply chain um, because I think that's something that's also not not totally understood is that a lot of the the workers in the supply chain, both in the manufacturing part, but also in the in the farming part, are women. Um, the majority, according to the FAO, the majority of economically active women, which would be those that are kind of buying and selling in local markets. Uh, most the majority of them in least developed countries work in agriculture um, and so mm-hmm. there are tons of people that are behind the clothes that we're making and their voices are getting louder and stronger and I think that's only positive and only beneficial because again the more we hear from women the more we understand what the how the supply chain is affecting them that is changing um, I think the reality of of what what is acceptable. Um, in terms of the impacts that are happening in the supply chain. And so there's, it's not just one one woman, but I think it's a, a really powerful voice that's rising.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we talk about just climate action over and over again. And the reality is, I mean, I'm yeah. on the steering committee for She Changes Climate, and we've just been pouring our way through a new report that's come out, which really, really spells in absolute clarity that women will be hardest hit by uh, environmental breakdown yes. no surprises there but hearing from those women and creating spaces and routes to their voices coming through is so so needed and you know the, the term warrior can refer to a whole group of people so I put my hands together and nod a moment of respect to uh, the women in the, in the farming community all around the world who are clothing us clothing our children Mm -hmm. putting the sheets on our bed that keep us warm at night and sounds from this conversation that what would a world look like if we gave thanks and took a moment to think about the care in our lives for materials thank you so much that was just really a beautiful conversation and I'm I'm a fully a converted fan of textile exchange <laughs> now through this conversation. Um, I look mm, forward to you. getting to know each other more through our work and connection. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Carla.
1: It's, um, not very often we get the opportunity to just sit down and reflect in this way, so I, I really appreciate the space. Thank you.
0: I'm Carla. You've been listening to Warrior Women, the podcast by the Warrior Women Network. Brought to you by Zinc VC and produced by Birdline Media.